The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to uh, pick up here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 16 and just kind of go through the whole chapter. But I don't know, um, one of the things that I miss most actually about our current situation is that I love that we meet in the Hope Center for worship. I love that we meet in a place that is all about helping people find um, hope and healing wherever they are uh, to become uh, healthier in their journey together. I, if we were in the Hope Center, I would turn around and say, imagine all the people in, who have felt the extreme shame and darkness and failure of being in the deepest part of their addiction and then look around in the hallways and you see all this artwork that's up at the Hope Center. You see all this poetry that's up on the, on the walls in the Hope Center. You see over 100 meetings a week in the Hope Center, all about helping people um, who were at their darkest moments find help and healing moving forward. One of the things I think that is most helpful and tangible about the, way, the place that we meet for worship is that it highlights the very reason for why the gospel is so powerful. Because here we have, at the end of this book, you have this kind of lingering question. All right, Paul has, in effect, uh, my dad called it the come to Jesus talk. He's done the come to Jesus talk with all, with, through this whole letter, taking the task on all these issues. And you could feel at the very end of this book that they, are, they have this sense of, okay, well, if all this is true, um, we are absolute failures, and we really are no good for anything. And as we've been talking about, this whole book is about good news for bad Christians. And here Paul ends with a bit of a pep talk, effectively. Yeah, we've had this come to Jesus talk. You're at, in many ways, this letter represents some of the lowest points of their experience, of their relationship with Paul, and in their life together, a, uh, one of their darkest moments, one of their lowest moments. And here Paul comes up and says, okay, yeah, but you're still a part of the mission. Let's get back at it, back on the field. Like That's, that's kind of where this passage is coming in for us. It is, in a way, yes, they've had a wake-up call, but here Paul is, in effect, the reason this chapter is here is to say, you are still a part of the mission of Jesus. You're not disqualified. Man, you guys have got some serious issues going on, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the book began, has been sent to them. It has power among them, and it is, being, it is working out to send them out now on the other side of this letter to continue in their life in the mission of God. You're still in the game, Paul's saying. So if you come this morning and you're feeling like, I feel like I have no use, given all the situation that's going on right now, uh, I have no use for this kingdom of God or the gospel advance right now, um, given that basically I work from home, I eat at home, I go get gas and a couple groceries, and I stay at home, I am totally useless. Every point in which I could be contributing to the kingdom of God and the advance of the gospel um, in general is undermined. And then uh, if you just kind of feel like, well, I've made enough decisions in the last month or in the last year, I really am of no use. Let me just consume this video of a sermon and, uh, and then I'll go and feel better. No, this, this chapter's here for you. It's here for me because we all feel at many points uh, we are at the lowest point of our lives, whether it's the last week with the COVID stuff or everything else. And this chapter comes in and say, okay, yeah, there are issues but you still are invited into the mission of Jesus. You're still a part of it. And if you're a part of it, this chapter actually lays out, you're still invited to contribute to, this, to the mission of Jesus, and that contribution looks like sacrifice. But it's not sacrifice to earn your place in the mission. It's actually meaningful sacrifice that contributes to the advance of the mission. It is a meaningful sacrifice you're invited to 
that contributes to the power of the mission of the gospel of Jesus. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this, and we're going to ask this simple question. How does the mission of, of, of Jesus go forward with bad Christians? It goes forward with Christians making meaningful sacrifices along the way. Bad Christians making meaningful sacrifices along the way. So here's the main point of this passage. Sacrifice for the advance of, the, of Christ's mission. Or you could phrase it like this. Even if you're a bad Christian or only bad Christians can sacrifice for the advance of Christ's mission. So we're going to look at four areas of sacrifice that this passage highlights. I just want to acknowledge uh, we are going to be kind of like selectively pulling up a few verses because there's a lot that goes on in this last chapter, and we're just going to pull out four, four sections of sacrifice. The first section of sacrifice is uh, bad Christians are invited to contribute to the mission of Jesus through financial sacrifices. So here, here we have verses one through four. Now concerning the collection of the, for the saints, as I directed churches of Galatia, so are you also to do? And he gives some instructions, ending with this is a gift for the church in Jerusalem. So if you're not familiar with the story of the New Testament, here's what happens. Jesus shows up. He teaches everybody about here's what it looks like for God's mission to be real and true and powerful. This is what grace looks like. Grace overcomes evil by dying for it. And so he dies in our place uh, before the wrath of God. And as he rises from the grave, he now creates a whole new community composed not of people with um, specific uh ID cards, right? Everybody previously to that had like their Jewish ID card, like I'm a super Jew uh, ID card, or I'm a super New Hampshire ID card, or whatever it is, and that was what made them a part of God's kingdom. Jesus comes in and says, no, 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 it's faith, and that's the ID card that makes you a part of God's kingdom. And so now you have people who are from Jewish background or super Gentile backgrounds, and they all are part of the kingdom of God. What that creates is some real problems for people in the Jewish community specifically in Jerusalem. So in the book of Acts, you have a bunch of people who are there worshiping Jesus, and by becoming Christians as a Jew, that cut them off from the entirety of the Jewish economic system that they had previously been a part of. So all their family trades, they were family trades in the Jewish community, and now that they become a follower of this guy claiming to be the, the Son of God and the Messiah, they're cut off from all of those economic benefits of being a part of the Jewish community, and they were in financial distress, this begins to feel very familiar, doesn't it? They were in financial distress, and so all these Gentiles and Jews are basically around the world, in the known world of the time, saying, okay, well, let's pull a collection up, because now there's thousands and thousands of, of believers, people who follow Jesus, ethnically Jewish, by faith Christians, who have no money. And so they were collecting all these financial resources from around the world as a, basically a special offering to send to the church in Jerusalem. So that's what's going on. So when it says in the church, uh, uh, verse 1, as I directed the churches of Galatia, over in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says to them that at, when he was sent out on his Gentile mission, the apostles said to him, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Right? That's what he tells the Galatians, basically, hey, remember the poor, make that a priority, because our generosity to the poor, whether it's locally, globally, is an expression of how deeply the alien love of God has valued and cared for our poverty before him, right? We don't deserve, we don't live in the country of God's love by nature <laughs> in a certain sense, and his love comes to us in our poverty and gives, him, gives us all of who God is for us and the way in which we care for those who are not in, um, in that are in financial distress, the poor among us, is that we give freely of our finances to support them and help them. 
So here kind of picking up a little bit of a few things in this passage. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Right? What's going on here, here as you, when we finish out that verse, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Right? That word collecting, uh, just to make sure that it's clear, that word collecting is not like a tax word, right? It's not a compulsive gift, right? Uh, Paul is not basically saying, every one of you, 5% of your giving, give it on, on, sun, on Sunday morning, you do that or you're out of the church. It's a free will offering. It's a very much that the word is a religious voluntary gift. But he doesn't want them uh, to kind of be called on... Um, their promises not being kept, right? Have you ever been a part of a church where they've done like some sort of like capital campaign or like how much do you, can you, we need to collect this amount of money for this issue or whatever, and they kind of give out cards beforehand to kind of say, okay, uh, who can give what? They collect those cards. Okay, we can give this amount to this issue. All right, and then they, they expect people to come uh, follow through on their giving. This is basically what Paul's doing here. It's he's basically saying like, okay, you guys said you're going to give to help our friends in Jerusalem, um, let me just give you a little bit of some advice on how to make sure that this happens, right? And when he talks about them uh, doing this on the first day of every week, he is picking up on this reality that Christian worship had begun to move at that time period. It's not very clear at what time it exactly happened, but it had gone from being on Saturday mornings to being on Sunday mornings. And now, okay, when you guys get together, just remember, set a few bucks aside, bring those bucks together, somebody collect them on Sunday morning, and you'll be able to uh, incrementally fulfill your promise to help the Jerusalem church at whatever they had promised to help them with. Right? This, this basically piggybacks on this idea that giving would have been already a part of their life together, and so that would have been a part of their uh, life together, which is kind of a separate issue. And here he's basically saying, piggybacking on your discipleship, thriving and giving already, here's how you're going to fulfill this very um, simple but significant financial sacrifice for, to support your brothers and sisters. So the first week, first day of every week is when they're supposed to do that. Um, they're taking up the collection progressively so that they basically don't get embarrassed. One of the things I find interesting about this passage here at the end, um, he says, uh, verse 3, when I arrive, I'll, we'll, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul, uh, and he's, he ends, if it seems advisable, then I should go also, I will, uh, they will accompany me. You kind of pick up this hesitation on Paul's part to basically touch any of the money, right? He's basically saying, like, uh, this is going to be your gift. It's going to be your name on the check. Um, I'm not going to put it in my pocket and then uh, happen to give however much out I want to our friends of Jerusalem, right? No, you guys are going to basically do an accreditation process to say, here's how much we gave. Um, here's somebody who's trustworthy. They've got letters. There's a process or policy in place, and here's who the money is directed to. Um, this is basically uh, one of those verses that you might say is the grounding for why we have financial integrity policies in our church. Um, I, from the very beginning of the church plant, we've had an accountant who's helped us run things. Uh, we're, uh, Drew has been our, our treasurer to help us uh, run our finances for the last few years. Um, much like the Apostle Paul, this is for me because I don't want to have any issues with the finances of our church. 
When people give, I want them to give confidently that what they're giving to is actually happening. Nobody's, you know, pulling secret gifts out of the church or you guys aren't funding like my secret vacations or you guys aren't paying for like ridiculous things like an airplane or drones or whatever sort of extra hobby things that I want. You guys aren't buying me a home gym, you know? (laughs) You guys, when you give, you give and there's financial policies and integrity in place so that those gifts go to where they belong. I will say that um, it's not my strength in terms of like managing that stuff, which is why uh, Drew is really good at this stuff. I'm really grateful for what Drew's done. It becomes a little annoying at times because he's so good at it and he makes me have to wrestle through some certain things that I'm not very good at. And that I think should build our confidence. So when we say we're trying to take up a financial gift from the stimulus package to support and care for those among us um, who are in need, that's the interaction of both our deacon of compassion, Rachel, uh, Drew, our treasurer, making sure that the heart of our church is being expressed, that you guys are incredibly generous to financially sacrifice. So in many ways, this paragraph is a reminder of God's grace in our lives and our gr- God's grace in your lives to actually follow through on this stuff. And the way in which we do it is actually grounded in this passage. So if you are looking for a way to continue to be financially sacrificing for the advance of Jesus' mission right now, I would strongly encourage you to consider, can you give some of the stimulus package money to support those needs in our area, right? Ultimately, I'm still reminded, um, Adam in our last family meeting asked about our ability to give to global missions as a church. Um, I am hoping that in this next year, um, it's my hope that we can begin to put that sort of funding in our church budget so that we are giving towards global missions in one way or another. Um, But making giving a regular part of your life, week to week, paycheck to paycheck, month to month, will help special needs sacrifices a more joyful and attainable process, a more attainable sacrifice. So with that said, there's a number of sacrifices that Paul is kind of calling out in this passage. He kind of having to hodgepodge a little bit all these things together. But the next one he pulls up, if you're reading along, in my Bible it just has the next paragraph calling plans for travel. And so the next sacrifice that he's calling us to in the contribution of the gospel's advance is planning sacrifices. (laughs) I promise I got a PhD in preaching to make these sort of points up. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as am I, so let no one despise him. Help him, on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Right? These are, if you're paying attention to what's going on here, it's not very hard to see that Paul is basically saying, like, uh, we want to do a lot of stuff for Jesus. We want to do it together with you. We want to do it meaningfully. But because it's Jesus' mission, I hope I can come and see you. Not sure if it's going to happen or when it's going to happen. There's a certain sense in which Paul is putting plans in place. I want to come and see this. I want to come and do this. I'm sending this person to you. There's a lot of activity going on here. But you kind of get this sense of verse 6, right? And perhaps I'll stay with you. And perhaps this. There's a very sense of like, okay, Paul's really not like tying his, his ministry identity to making sure his plans pan out, right? 
There, there is a mission here, but it depends on the Lord of the missions leading, right? Who would have predicted this year, in 2020, in the mission of King's Cross Church, that we would have been doing this right now? Right? Uh, I th- setting aside all the tragedy, obviously, of what's going on, there is a certain sense of irony that for the year 2020 and all the church vision statements for 2020 clarity on what God's doing among us, nobody saw this coming. I think that that is because we want to be faithful, like Paul, to say, here's what we'd like to do. We want to, we want to make sure that this initiative happens. We want to make sure that these people get trained. We want to make sure that this person gets to that place, be able to do these ministry things, all understanding that this is we aren't the ones at the driver's seat of the world, let alone King's Cross Church. God's the one driving this whole ship. And so when we, when we make our plans, our priority in making our plans is to sacrifice for the mission, which means we are always sacrificing for the sake of other people. Right? Did you see that here? Verse 7, For I do not want to see you just now. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Right? You can imagine the power of that statement at the end of this letter. Paul's basically saying, like, look, I know the band-aid's been ripped off, and there's a lot of open wounds after this letter. I want to see you when we've had a little bit of some time to chill out and so we can actually enjoy being together. I want to see you so that we can actually enjoy spending time together and maybe revisiting this letter together, but so that we revisit it in a way that we're refreshed in the Lord together, right? And then when he sends in verse verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the Lord's work as am I. Help him on his way in peace. Timothy basically would have been like, uh, Paul's shadow, right? Paul would have been doing all this ministry all over the world, and here was Timothy always doing work with him. Basically, his men, uh, Paul was Timothy's mentor, and Timothy was Paul's heir apparent in a certain sense. And so you can understand if the tension, if there's tension between the church and Corinth, and there's between uh, Corinth and Paul, there would have been implicit tension between Corinth and Timothy. And Paul's saying, like, look, uh, Timothy's got spare time. He's got time to invest and give with you guys. And so he's coming, and I just want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Uh, make sure that he's at ease. Whatever your plans are, help him, set him up. Make sure that he's got space to stay, a uh, place to stay. He's got work to do. But make sure that it's all done in peace. Because planning, because the mission of God always prioritizes people over plans, People must be, must be the focus of our sacrifices and our planning. Right? Have you ever gone on a vacation and you've had somebody running that vacation and you're just kind of like, dude, like, we didn't come on a vacation just to like, fulfill all of your list of to-dos of whatever the, you know, we're going to go to this beach from 10 to 1130 and then we're going to pack up, we're going to leave the beach, and we're going to go home, and we're going to have hot dogs for lunch and we're gonna, everybody's going to take uh, personal time from 1230 to 1245 and then we're going to leave and we're going to go to the park from 1 to 4. You know, our vacations don't exist to make sure those plans get fulfilled. Or if you've got a manager who's very strict on, I scheduled you for this day, and you're going to work from this time to this time. Well, I'm like, uh, something came up with my kids, I, or something's going on with my family, or uh, whatever the, the real human need is, and the manager really sticks to the schedule. Right? That's when we begin to idolize our planning over people. And Paul is, at the end of this, beginning to say, remember, Whatever the truths are that we've worked out in this letter, our mission in Jesus is always people over just mere planning. 
So as we work through this, there's really not more to kind of pull out of this, but just to simply say, how can you plan to practice prioritizing people, even in all this situation, what's going on, it seems like in this, specifically in a quarantine situation, that will require sacrifice. Who are the vulnerable people in your community right now? Who are the vulnerable people around you in your neighborhood? Who are the vulnerable people, the forgotten people, the people who are most distressed by this situation? And how can you plan to sacrifice your time to help them, at, at minimum, to have a little bit of some relief of some stress? How can you be a way of a wave of grace and love to support them during this time, right? Whatever your schedule is right now, how can you be sacrificing your time to support those around you? One of the other things that Paul brings up here is cultural sacrifices. He, this, I'm going to pull this one out a little bit of the passage because it's kind of underlying under the passage a little bit. But as we've been working through this, this kind of final passage, this final chapter of the First uh, Corinthians, Paul is laying out, look. You can, no matter good Christian, bad Christian, probably bad Christians, you can still financially contribute to supporting your brothers in another place. You've got finances, easy enough to give those to other people, and it's going to help you grow in your gospel love of generosity for other people. You can accommodate and give your time to help other people in the mission of God moving forward. It's easy enough. You've got plenty of time. Everybody's got the same amount of time. Free, you can free up your time to sacrifice and help other people. This other one's a little bit under the surface. The, the verses 12 to 18, let's pull this one out. Cultural sacrifices are things that you can be, uh, that even bad Christians can be uh, contributing to. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the, that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. What I really just want to focus on is this verse 12 here, verses 12 to 14, or 13 and 14. You see here, there's a, Paul pulls out this issue with Apollos. He says, uh, basically, I urged Apollos to come and visit you, and Apollos decided not to do it right now, even against my strong encouragement. But what he's pulling from is that here earlier in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, if you remember, this is maybe almost literally a year ago when we were preaching through this. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 4 to 6, Paul says this, when anyone says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, and the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, right? What Paul is basically acknowledging is that Apollos held, for various reasons, a very strong presence, a very strong gravity in the mind of the Corinthian church. Effectively, uh, if Paul came from like this um, very kind of like, uh, privileged is too negative a word. If he came from a uh, 
prestigious Jewish background, with prestigious Jewish educational credentials. He was a Roman citizen. He and then rose into by God's gifting leadership in the church. Apollos is in some ways kind of like his match from the Gentile direction, right? The not Jewish, obviously very articulate, educated, a strong leader. Apollos kind of was like his match, and given that it was a Jewish, or I'm sorry, a uh, a Roman and Greek context, Apollos would have had cultural cachet. He would have had a cultural privilege that Paul would not have had. Apollos then is clearly understood to have had kind of like a faction of people in the Corinthian church that really liked Apollos. Like he was their guy, right? If you had your conference setting, they would have skipped Paul's main session and gone straight to Apollos' session. Like they loved Apollos. And so if I'm right in my understanding of the, the way in which Apollos kind of like fit into the Corinthian ethos, you can imagine this sort of argument being placed, it being made by Paul. Hey, Apollos, we've had these issues with the Corinthian church. They've got these issues going on. Uh, why don't you go and help them work through gospel application and gospel truths and all of these issues? Because they really like you a lot. <laughs> and, and effectively, Paul could have been leveraging, so to speak, Apollos's uh, cultural power, cultural influence to help the Corinthian church get right on track, right? I can imagine that being Paul's kind of sense of things, that basically, Apollos, they love you. Uh, why don't you go? I'm strongly urging you, help them get back on track. And Apollos, it says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will when he has opportunity, right? This is a strong statement. Um, the the phrasing of when he has time, right, uh, opportunity is kind of um, a little bit more passive, right? The, the, the actual kind of meaning of that phrase is not just simply like, okay, when he's got time to fit you into his schedule. It's actually the, the, the Greek framing of that is when the time is right, which indicates to me there's some thoughtfulness in Apollos' reasons for not coming right now. It's his pastoral instinct to say, you know what? Now is not the right time. Another time will be the time to go and visit and help my brothers and sisters at Corinth get kind of back on track. He is, in effect, if I'm understanding this kind of scenario correctly, he's sacrificing his cultural power to highlight gospel power in the Corinthian church. He is, in effect, not utilizing the power that he had at his disposal with kind of cultural like preference for him over Paul and all that stuff. He's basically saying, like, I want the gospel to have such a powerful influence in your life. I'm not even going to use the cultural power that I have to enforce that. I'm going to make sure that it's only Jesus and the gospel's power through him that's highlighted in your change and growth in Jesus. I think that that's what's going on here. Because I, there's a very clear indication that Apollos has, to, has this power in the church or this cultural preference in the church. And Paul's highlighting, look, I tried to get him to go. He decided not to go. And here's why. He wanted to see you grow in Jesus. Let me just make one little comment here. I, um, in terms of Christian culture and leadership culture, isn't it very interesting that Paul lays it out there and say, um, basically, I had this disagreement. I strongly urged my brother to go and visit with you, and he said no, um, and he's going to come at another time. And he's writing this in a letter to a bunch of people who don't really like Paul, <laughs> who've got a beef with Paul, and Paul's leadership and his influence 
and his, frankly, his identity is not on the line with airing disagreements that he has with other brothers. Right? Do you find it interesting that Paul is basically saying, like, look, we had a disagreement, and this disagreement being aired in a letter uh, that's going to be put in church record for all eternity, sent to people who have a disagreement with me, um, is not in any way undermining Paul's sense of a security in how he kind of thinks of himself as a leader, right? In effect, he could be giving them ammunition. Like, look, Apollos disagree with you. Why can't we disagree with you? Paul's not too, like, his identity is not in the line of making sure that all this sense of, like, being a perfect leader is preserved with the Corinthian church. He's not trying to protect his, uh, his reputation. He could easily be connected with airing disagreements against Apollos. Paul is not concerned with managing his reputation or how he is perceived. In a gospel culture, we both sacrifice our cultural power and we, we sacrifice managing our own identities. Because Paul is basically saying, like, none of that stuff matters. You know what matters? Jesus and your faith and growing in him matters. Me making sure that you think I'm, a, I'm the best leader me or Apollos using his cultural power uh, to influence you towards uh, growth in Jesus. None of that stuff matters. Actually, he kind of implies that going on to verse 13. Look, you, Corinthian church, you yourselves, you be watchful. You stand firm in the faith. You, and he uses this phrase, act like men. Right? And what that really just means is um, be mature. Right? He's not saying like um, kind of like this uh, rugged, you know, he-man, like, act like men. Ah, He's actually just saying, like, look, you guys have been acting like kids and doing all this crazy stuff. Uh, you've been coloring your face green, <laughs> like, off in the corner. You just guys need to grow up in Jesus, right? That's all the phrase means. Act like men. Be mature. Be strong. But all that you do be done in love, right? It's, we're following along in First Corinthians. You remember, they've had all these cultural influences and all these messed up, I'm going to use my cultural power and all this stuff. And he's saying... Remember first, chapter 13, which Peter led us through, the main heart of the Corinthian letter, the main heart of the Christian love, is to act in love towards your brothers and sisters. And that's what he's calling them towards here. The culture of a church must be defined by love for each other. It must be defined by leaning into each other, loving each other, sacrificing even our preferences and our cultural power that comes with that. It looks, frankly, a gospel culture looks like verses 15 to 18, right? Here are these people who served you. Here are these people who've loved you and given their lives to help you grow in Jesus. Uh, those are the people, not the people with certain degrees with letters behind their name, not the people with certain political uh, connections. The people who serve you to grow in Jesus, those are the people that you should be following. Those are the people, he ends verse 18, give recognition to such people. If you're wondering what does this application look like, it's a little bit hard to kind of do this in a virtual context, but just put this on your radar. Cultural sacrifices always feel awkward. Culture is um, a basically kind of like almost, it's like a second brain. It tells you what to do without you having to think about it, right? When I walk out in the morning, you know, I get my cup of coffee and I engage with the world in a certain way, not because I'm consciously thinking of how to do that. Our culture has kind of been set for us in a certain sense. So becoming aware of that is going to feel awkward. What do I do? How do I talk to this person? I feel like this sort of like second brain, like I should automatically ask about this, but that feels awkward. I don't know what to do. Uh, 
lean into those moments. If you lean in with love, the Spirit is eager to meet you as you're trying to lean in to care for other people and help them grow in Jesus, which will mean that awkwardness and that moment of kind of like, what do I say, what do I do? That's a moment of sacrifice that the Lord loves and he's going to meet. So where do you feel awkward in your desire to love others for Jesus? That is the exact moment where gospel culture is beginning to take root in our hearts. Not that you should say, like, be awkward all the time, and it should be like an office episode all the time in your Christian life as a church. But just say, well, you did that moment of, I don't know what to do, and helping other people and serving them and loving them. That's a sacrifice that should be leaned into where Jesus is eager to meet you and loving those around you. All right, let's finish this out. Verse 19 to 24, we've talked about financial sacrifices and contributing to the, love, to the gospel of Jesus. We have talked about planning sacrifices and making people a priority in the, in the mission of Jesus. We've talked about cultural sacrifices. And the last thing that Paul's going to talk about is just, frankly, comfort sacrifices, right? We all love comfort. We're going to end this out with talking about comfort sacrifices. Even bad Christians like me and maybe you can make comfort sacrifices. So let's pick up verse 19 to 24. The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you a heart and greetings. In the Lord, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Or our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. The reason I'm calling this comfort sacrifice is actually kind of pulls from verse 21 and then kind of is hinted at in verse 20 because everybody felt awkward with verse 20. But we're going to hit verse 21 first. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. It's very likely that Paul had some type of physical ailment. He had some sort of physical discomfort um, where he basically had, um, the general term would be kind of like a secretary who wrote the letter for him. You see this at the end of uh, Romans. Almost certainly he had some sort of either eyesight or physical ailment where it was challenging or probably painful for Paul to actually physically write, right? he, let alone walking and preaching and teaching. He had some sort of physical ailment that made it hard. He had a, which generally uh, a secretary who he basically dictated a letter to and they wrote in his place. The technical word is for, for this is an amnusis. It's a weird Latin term. I'm sure Aaron can help me pronounce that better. <laughs> but it's basically somebody who wrote the letter that he dictated it to them and they wrote it down. But he ends, he insists on saying, like, I love the Corinthian church so much. I want you to know, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. In other letters, he says, he makes, a basic, makes the comment, you see what big letters I write this with? Almost like if you've ever gotten a note from one of your elderly family or friends, that uh, their handwriting is just kind of shaky and large. Because, frankly, when you're 90 years old, you got to make it big to be able to see it, right? And it's hard to write. There is a comfort that Paul is sacrificing to end this letter by making sure they know his love for them in Jesus. Paul is authenticating his letter. He's authenticating his love by sacrificing his comfort to help them know he's with them in the mission of Jesus to help them grow. The other thing I want to pick up on here is verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings, right? You could almost pick up all these brothers who've kind of born with you and all this crazy stuff that you keep doing. They send you greetings and their love in the Lord and then greet one another with a holy kiss, right? This is, of course, one of those phrases where you read that and you're just kind of like, uh, no. 
I am not kissing anybody else. Actually, as I was kind of looking at this up, there's some indication that in the early church, they took this quite literally and not that in the early church, they would have men on one side, women on the other. That's a very kind of um, Middle Eastern thing to do in terms of how you segregate a congregation out. <laughs> and my understanding, I, I swear I'm not making this up, is that men would give other men a holy kiss on the lips for Jesus. And same for the women. I'm just kind of like, eh, no way, I'm not doing that. I love you. Um, I know that our friends like uh, Maggie and Felipe, they are from the Chilean culture where you give people kisses on the cheeks. That's stretching it for me. But I think the more important dynamic of what's going on here is that Paul is emphasizing be affectionate with other people. Be affectionate, right? This is actually a command that's stated five times in the New Testament letters. Actually, it's one of the, the highest, uh, the uh, most regularly commanded phrases of Christian affection in the life of the church in the New Testament. It's mentioned five times in saying, look, be affectionate, be, express affection, be, um, be sure that you let other people know you love them in Jesus. I think that's all he means by greet each other with a holy kiss. But as we say that, in the context of COVID-19, I recognize that that sort of command is going to hit each of us in different places and in different ways. Right. The reality is physical contact, physical affection, appropriate physical affection is a key component of mental health. Right. This is one of the things that you see this actually um, in a newborn baby. We've got a couple newborn babies in the church. Their physical contact with their mother, on, um, mother and father in the very few beginning hours is actually a part of kind of creating this like almost like symbiotic relationship between them. Right, we have this happen uh, as we get older. We just feel better. It's actually scientifically a truth that you feel better. You are more mentally stable and more mentally healthy when you just have like a simple hug from somebody. Just give somebody, um, you know, if it was I talked about last week, like an eight-second hug or something like that. But um, physical contact, appropriate physical contact, is strongly connected to mental health. I wonder if that's. I'm, not sure, I'm sure that Paul did not have in his mind, people have better mental health when they have physical contact and a holy kiss in the church. But I think it's one of those moments where the Bible actually speaks to something that we intuitively know. We just, as it were, created to be physical beings and to have physical affection appropriately ex- expressed. A hug, you know, if it's in your culture, a kiss, a handshake, a side hug, if that's your culture thing or whatever, Right. Affection in one way or another must require a physical component where it's appropriately expressed. And I think in the context of COVID-19, this is one of those areas where it's going to be uncomfortable on the other side of this. I have no idea what the other side of this looks like. I have no idea what it's going to look like for us to get back together and and, uh, in person. Do we do social distancing, blah, blah, blah? I don't know. All those things set aside, when we do get back together, shaking somebody's hand, giving somebody a hug, there's going to be a hesitation, an awkwardness. What do I do? Can we do this? Is anybody going to get sick? We should greatly anticipate figuring that out together, helping each other, but we also must recognize that some people are going to process this differently. And for some, that moment of a holy kiss, hug, whatever, is going to raise a great deal of anxiety for some. And so we must sacrifice our comfort of doing that and have mercy on those who struggle. But we must still aim towards what does it look like together to be an affectionate people? 
because we want to be people that express our love for Jesus in tangible ways. I recognize that it's kind of like a bit of an odd angle on this back end of this passage, but the reality is that we are all going to have comforts that we must sacrifice, whether it's just physically. We just, it's, it's hard for us to get to church. Mentally, it's hard for us to get to church. Um, it's hard for us to figure out what does it look like to appropriately tell each other, we love you and we're with, it, we're with you in Jesus. All those things, we must have patience and mercy and sacrifice along the way because those, even those small components of our physical affection for each other are a part of joining the mission of Jesus because he is making all things new and he's making us whole people, body and soul. So Paul ends this passage, this letter, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Right? This is the aim of Christian affection. This is the aim of Christian love. All is done in love to receive the reward of Jesus Christ. We're, gonna, we're not going to finish out our time in 1 Corinthians now. We're going to do this next week. We'll do an overview sermon on it. But the gospel ends in this way. Even if you feel at one point or another, as we've worked through this book, basically uh, taken to the principal's office and addressing issues in your life, you are not left in the shame of being exposed before the all-seeing eye of God. He does see us. He sees us for who we are. That's, Paul has read their letter all through the book of 1 Corinthians. But he does it out of love for them. And then like a good father next to their child has a, has a conversation. All right, we see this issue clearly. Now back in the game. Paul is, in effect, inviting them back into the mission of Jesus to continue to the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things by the sacrifice, death, life, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are messed up people, but love propels sacrifice for messed up people, right? That's what Paul's done in this letter. He ends by saying, my love be with you all. You messed up group of people. You messed up King's Cross Church. You're still in the game. Right? Jesus, is still, Jesus is still calling us to be a part of his mission financially, comforts, planning, culture. All of that is sacrificed to the feet of Jesus so that we can join his love for other people. Here in Manchester, southern New Hampshire, and around the world, Paul is fo- refocusing them, and God is helping us to see Jesus Christ at the center of all things, leading us to new, uh, be renewed in him so that in his love we join his heart to give his love to others around us. So I pray that as we work through this passage and as we have been working through this book together, we would experience more deeply the love of Jesus for us, the power of his sacrifice for us, and that by his love we are eager to sacrifice for the advance of Christ's mission. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.